Good morning. Uh, church, it is good to be together. It is good to sing together. Thank you, music team. Um, man, I'm amped up and ready now. Bible's out, as always. You need them open in front of you and turn in them to John chapter 5, page 890 in the Pew Bible. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18. And we'll come back and look at some of this next week as well. John 5, verses 1 through 18, page 890. As a child of the late 80s and early 90s, I grew up on some of the great cartoons of all time. Uh, one of my favorites was Transformers. It wasn't what wasn't there to love for a, a little boy. Giant cars that turn into giant robots. Um, it was awesome. Uh, the tagline in the awesome intro of the show was Transformers more than meets the eye. Thank you. My, Nicole's like my pop cultural advisor. More than meets the eye is the, is, the, is the tag. Oh, look, a truck. Wait a second. No, it's a giant robot with a laser, right? It's more than meets the eye. I think that is also a good thing to keep in mind when it comes to some of these stories, especially some of these signs in the gospel. I mentioned it last week. I'm encouraging you to read slowly, pepper the text with questions. Like last week, this text seems simple. Actually, it's so simple and so similar to the previous story that as I was looking around, what most people seem to do is they just lump these two texts together. Look, Jesus heals. Uh, look, he does it again. Right? That's what our story is today. Jesus meets an invalid. Jesus talks to the invalid. Jesus heals the invalid. Uh, Jesus' is life, the end. But again, hold on. Slow down. Maybe here too we'll see more than meets the eye. Initially, at least the, the lazy, the quick reading eye. Remember our discussions of signs last week. The signs were never the point. John doesn't talk about miracles. John talks about signs. And the point of a sign is to point to something else. You don't focus on the sign. You focus on what it signifies. For John, a sign is not primarily a miraculous act, but a significant, a significant act. Yes, there's a miracle, but it is the meaning of the miracle that matters. Right? So a sign is just a physical material, a physical miracle that conveys a far more important spiritual truth. And that's especially the case this morning. This story about a healing, it's not really about a healing. There are bigger and better things going on here. The healing is not the point. It's not the focus. So it's not going to be our focus either. Jesus will be our focus. And what he is intending to reveal about himself will be our focus. This is John chapter 5. This is John uh, Jesus's crossing the Rubicon moment. Right, history people, you got to know these things. You need to know your history. 49 BC, Julius Caesar made the fateful and historic decision to lead his army across the Rubicon River down into Italy. You weren't supposed to do that. That was not allowed. That was treason. That was a declaration of war. Once he crossed that river with an army, there was no turning back. Conflict was inevitable. He was forcing that conflict. He was bringing that conflict about. That's John chapter 5. We are starting a new section of John, a new cycle of the book. We saw last week that chapters 2 through 4 were all about the revelation of Jesus as life. In him there was life. He turns water to wine. You must be born again. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He gives water welling up to eternal life. Your son will live. All about life. That's what we just finished. That's where we're coming from. Jesus is life. And what happens when life comes into contact 
with death? What happens when light confronts dark? Well, conflict happens. And it is conflict that characterizes the next cycle of John. The progressive revelation of the identity of Jesus results in the progressive opposition to Jesus by the Jewish authorities. Revelation results in confrontation. Christ results in conflict. Chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's John chapters 5 through 10 in one verse. And our text sets up the central issue of the conflict. And it is the context of conflict that is going to help us understand and apply this story. Remember, more than meets the eye. And Christ is infinitely more than meets the eye. And thus we must listen to him and hear from him and hear from his word. I've titled this sermon Compassionate Conflict because I'm convinced that we get compassion wrong. There is a beautiful revelation of the compassion of Christ in this text. But I want us to see the focus of that compassion. And then I want us to see the effect of that compassion. And it's actually going to be conflict. So we're focusing not on the healing. We're focusing not on the healed. We're focusing on Christ this morning. That's the point of this text. Further revelation of the identity of Christ. So we're going to run through four points to help kind of organize and structure our time. I want to start off by looking at Christ's compassionate healing, but then we're going to see that lead to Christ's compassionate confrontation. We don't think those words go together, but they do. Then that'll be followed by Christ's compassionate warning, and then the main point of the story, Christ's compassionate revelation. So healing, confrontation, warning, revelation. Let's read. This is the most important part of the morning. This is God's word. Pay attention to these words. John chapter 5 verses 1 through 18. This is what God wants to say to you today. After this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. If you would bow with me, let's begin with a word of prayer.
Father, we thank you for your word, your word that is living and active, your word that is the means through which you reveal yourself. We ask that you would now do that here in this time. Uh, Father, I am utterly helpless to accomplish anything of, of value here on my own. Um, Father, I pray that I would find no confidence in myself. I pray that I would find great confidence in you and in your word. I pray that I would speak clearly and boldly. I pray that I would speak gladly, and I pray that you would show us the goodness and the glory and the compassion and the kindness of your wonderful son, Jesus Christ. Father, draw our hearts to him. Make us more like him. Father, maybe there's someone in here who does not know him. Father, use your word to show them Christ and to give them life uh, in Christ. Father, help us, please. Help the preaching of your word and help the hearing of your word. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, point number one, Christ's compassionate healing. We can run through verses 1 through 8 pretty quickly. Again, the miracle is not actually the point. The miracle is the setting for the point. But first, why am I couching all of this in terms of compassion? Well, it's because this is who our Savior is. B.B. Uh, Warfield, the great Princeton professor of theology before Princeton went rogue, uh, he writes in his famous The Emotional Life of Our Lord, he says this, the emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to that Jesus whose whole life was a mission of mercy is no doubt compassion. In point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. The divine mercy has been defined as that essential perfection in God whereby he pities and relieves the miseries of his creatures. It includes, that is to say, the two parts of an internal movement of pity and then an external act of beneficence, right? seeking, doing good. It is the internal movement of pity which is emphasized when our Lord is said to be moved with compassion. Right, so this is the thing that is most said of Jesus in the emotional life of our Lord. For example, Mark 6.34, we read, When he went ashore, Jesus saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We'll see that when we get to John 13 through 17, much of that section is just taken up with the love of Jesus Christ. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Oh, what a wonderful word, church. He loved them to the end. Uh, the first glorious paragraph of the second chapter of the 1689, which we looked at last week, says, God is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Amen and amen. This is who our God is. But as we saw last week, we sometimes struggle to get this compassion and understand it correctly. Last week in 4.48, we saw a helpless, desperate, suffering father come to Jesus for help and healing for his dying son. And we saw initially Jesus rebuke him and teach him and confront him. But we actually saw how all of that was an expression of his compassion for him. And I think we see something similar this week as well. I've talked a lot about how vacuous and basically meaningless the word love is today. It's similar with compassion. We've, we've neutered it. We've made it devoid of meaning. But I want us to get it correct. And I want us to see rightly the compassion of Christ. I want us to see his great care. His great seeking of good for others. And I want us to see what that good is and what he cares about. And we see it in this text. 
Look at the text. Verse 1 sets the stage. Jesus, we left him last week in Galilee. Now we see him back in Jerusalem. It says he went up to Jerusalem, though he traveled south down on the map. Sea of Galilee, below sea level. Jerusalem, about 2,500 feet above sea level. So you always traveled up to Jerusalem. And Jesus is traveling there for a feast of the Jews. Which one? We don't know. So we're not going to worry about it. Uh, It's probably either the Feast of Booths or Passover or Pentecost. Jewish men were required to travel to Jerusalem three times a year. And even here, Jesus is obediently and perfectly fulfilling the law. So John doesn't tell us it must not really matter. And so he comes to Jerusalem. Verse 2, we're told specifically to the pool of Bethesda by the Sheep Gate. This is a a neat note because, you know, about... Uh, 150 years ago, we didn't know where this was. This is one of those things that critics would look at and say, look, it says pool by the sheep gate. And they say, look at Jerusalem. There is no pool by the sheep gate. The gospels aren't trustworthy. They're full of errors. There's no pool there. Then what happened? (laughs) Of course, they found the pool. It's actually two pools. You can go see it today. I stood at the edge of this pool a couple of years Back. And so once again, as is always the case, archaeology affirms the truthfulness and accuracy of Scripture. Right, so this is a tourist spot today, also commemorated in one of the most famous tourist spots in our city. You know where it is? Anybody know where it is? No? Central Park. Central Park. You have the mall. You walk up the beautiful mall, literary walk. And at the top, you get to the Bethesda Terrace. The Bethesda Terrace is highlighted by the big, beautiful Bethesda Fountain. And you look at the top of the big, beautiful Bethesda Fountain. There's a statue high up in the middle of the fountain. This is the first public art commission given to a female in the city. It's kind of neat. And it is called the Angel of the Waters. And it's all rooted in this text. But ironically, it's rooted in a misunderstanding of this text. Uh, If you were following along in the King James, as I read, you were probably confused. For you may have noticed that I did not read verse 4. Or if you were paying attention to the ESV, you may have noticed that verse 3 goes straight into verse 5. There is no verse 4 in the ESV. Take note in the ESV of footnote 4. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you'll see a little footnote 4 at the end of verse 3. Follow that down to the bottom of the page, and you'll see this note that some manuscripts insert verse 4. And it is in verse 4 that we get this strange mention of an angel kind of stirring up healing waters. What's going on here? Why no verse 4 in the ESV? Is there an error? Is the evil ESV taking out parts of Scripture? Is it missing parts of Scripture? Well, no, actually, it seems that in a few spots, the King James has actually added parts of Scripture. Uh, We're going to walk through this in great detail when we get to chapter 8. So kind of hold some of the questions, and we'll get there next year sometime. But quickly... Quickly, as we are reading, notice you have an English translation in front of you. You know that your Bible was not written in King James English, right? We have English translations of ancient Greek texts written 2,000 years ago. But guess what? We do not have a single copy of those original Greek texts. Is that a problem? Not at all. 
because we have thousands and thousands and thousands, over 6,000 copies of ancient Greek texts that go way back, very close to the time of the originals. We think John's Gospel was written somewhere around 90 AD. We have a fragment of a text of John's Gospel that goes all the way back to 125 AD. That might not sound that impressive, but that's actually unheard of and amazing. Only 35 years after the original, we already have manuscripts. No other ancient manuscript comes close to the New Testament in how accurate and historical and faithful it is to the original. I mentioned Julius Caesar at the beginning. Uh, his famous Gallic Wars, a text you'll often study in a Latin class, they were written around 50 BC. The earliest manuscript we have of Caesar's Gallic Wars comes from about 950 years after that. That's the earliest manuscript that we have. No one doubts that it's accurate. Uh, no one doubts that we have what Caesar wrote. So Caesar, 950 years. John, 35 years. You can trust your New Testament. Uh, they are well attested. But in the couple of insignificant spots where there are tiny little minor discrepancies, it's pretty easy to sort out uh, what's going on. And you do that by laying out 6,000 New Testament manuscripts that you have and comparing them. And as a general rule, just a general basic idea is that the older, the better. Right? The closer you can get to the um, original, the better. Well, when the King James was translated in the 17th century, they actually only had a couple of texts, just a few, and they were all very late texts written in the 12th to 15th century. So over a thousand years after the originals, uh, the King James is working from these Greek uh, manuscripts. Well, since the 17th century, we have found thousands more Greek manuscripts, much older, much closer to the original, and none of the best and oldest manuscripts have verse 4. It's just not there. It doesn't show up for hundreds of years in the manuscripts. And so that means some scribe, just again, probably trying to be helpful, putting some note in the side, put that in there, and then it eventually got added to some manuscripts, and, we, and some people thought, oh, wait, this is part of Scripture. No, it's, it's, it's just not, because it's not in the oldest manuscripts. He probably, the scribe, looked at verse 7. Remember the man mentions the water being stirred up? Well, that's, what's that all about? That's kind of confusing. And so then he tried to helpfully kind of add a note and explain, hey, here's what he's talking about. Here's the superstition behind what he is mentioning there. So in the oldest manuscripts, there is no verse 4. Thus, there was no angel stirring up water and, he and healing people. It was a local superstition. And there's just nothing particularly biblical about it. Right? You can go around today and you can find all kinds of pagan shrines devoted to superstitious healings. That's basically what had developed around this pool. There's probably some sort of natural spring feeding it. Maybe think like a, a hot water spring that people today go to because they think that it has maybe therapeutic value and then, then some sort of healing legend develops. Right? So no verse 4. It's just a pool where people gather thinking that there's healing, but there's not. And so as I said, it's a tourist spot today. It wouldn't have been a tourist spot back then at the time of Jesus. Verse 3 tells us, There lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. I said, this would have been a terrible, uh, sad spot. It would have been dirty. It would have been um, smelly. This is not where you go and visit. But this is where Jesus goes and visits. And in verse 5, we specifically see why. He always does everything that he does purposefully. One man was there, an invalid for 38 
years. I am 37, so that's one year longer than I have been alive. That's a long time. And keep in mind that the average lifespan for a man at this time was little more than 40 years. So this is basically a whole life of suffering. This is helplessness and hopelessness, and that's being highlighted here. Verse 6, and Jesus sees him, and he knows him in all his helplessness. And look at what he says. Again, not exactly what we would expect. Bedside manner, Jesus. Uh, Do you want to be healed? Yes. (laughs) Right? It seems like a silly question. We know it's not because it's Jesus, and he's perfect. Um, But I would not recommend leading um, in your conversations with the suffering with this question. Uh, Again, keep in mind, more than meets the eye. Look at the man's answer. Verse 7. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. But notice, first of all, he didn't say yes. Right? That's the answer that we would expect. That's the answer we think that we would all give in his situation. Yes, I want to be healed. He doesn't say that. Yeah, it's hard to say exactly what this man is doing. But it could seem that he's deflecting and deferring. Instead of saying he wants to be healed, maybe he's making an excuse about why he has not yet been healed. And again, I want to be careful here because people are very split on how to interpret this guy. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But for now, just just remember for now, the guy's not the point. Jesus is the point. The guy's response leaves much to be desired. Oh, but look at Jesus' compassionate response. Verse 8, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Verse 9, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Yeah, that's amazing. We're, just, we're too used to these stories. Uh, this is stunning. 38 years of suffering. No more. Like, this is truly kind and compassionate. This is not just a feeling of pity. This is a seeking of good. And as such, it is further revelation of the identity of our Lord Jesus. He is life. He is health. He is healing. He is Lord over all. He speaks. I can't speak a word and keep you guys awake. He speaks a word. Health. Healing. Weak, useless, atrophied legs are knit back together. Try to imagine it. The man wasn't, isn't just able to like walk all of a sudden on spindly, powerless legs like a puppet on a string. Right? If you've had a, a cast for a long time before, you know what happens right, to your limbs when you do not use them. This guy hasn't been using them for 38 years. All of a sudden, Jesus speaks. And his word brings into existence muscle fibers and tendons and whatever goes into legs and making them work. Again, imagine seeing that. Muscles pulsing and growing, strength flowing, and all of a sudden this man walking. This is proof, by the way, that these miracles of healing no longer happen. We would know if this happened. A person with such a gift should march immediately to Elmhurst Hospital and get to work, please. Um, Show me Benny Hinn pushing a guy over without an arm, and then that arm coming into existence and growing and coming back and him using it, and I'll believe. Uh, But he doesn't. He can't. He's a liar and a thief. This is physical healing. Jesus does it. He is power and life. He is compassionate and kind. And if he can do that... Isn't this somebody that we should consider listening to? Like, isn't this someone that we should really kind of give our time and attention to? But there's more. And it gets better. Because Jesus is better. Again, this is not about the healing. The healing is a sign. That means that it must be pointing to something else. It is a physical act that signifies a spiritual truth. 
What is it? Let's keep moving. Point number two, Christ's compassionate confrontation. We get the compassion of a physical healing. That's what's generally highlighted and emphasized. We're used to that, but keep reading. We're not even to the point of the story. Verse 9. The second part of verse 9 gets us to the point of the story. Now, that day was the Sabbath. And if we were laying a soundtrack down over the Gospel of John, right? this is where we'd get like a bum, bum, bum. Or this is where we'd get some sort of ominous note. This is, this is foreboding. This is the crossing of the Rubicon. We'll come back to the man in point number three. Now we shift from the man to the Jews. Verse 10. Remember for John, the term, the Jews, is not an ethnic designation. It's a political, religious designation. He uses this word almost exclusively negatively, but he uses it not in reference to the Jewish people in general. He uses it in reference to the Jewish religious authorities in opposition to Jesus. So when you read the Jews in John, don't read the Jewish people. Read the Jewish religious leaders. Again, here, most likely the Pharisees. I guess this is wild, right? This is, this is sad. What's more sad is how easily we too can do this. They say to this man who has been healed, it's the Sabbath. Uh, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Yeah, they're wrong. We'll come back to that in a second. But first note how sad this is. 38 years, 38 years of powerlessness, of suffering, of loneliness, of legs that don't work, all of a sudden working, walking. This doesn't happen. This is not physically possible. This is power. This is compassion. Imagine the change for this man. Imagine knowing him, witnessing this. I love watching athletic greatness. Football season is officially here. The the Tar Heels, I wore my tie anyways, we lost, our season's already over. I had to change my sermon this morning because we lost. Uh, But I love fall. Cool weather's the best. Uh, Later summer, I'm happy. I'm not a great athlete. I can kind of run far and that's it. But I love watching athletic greatness. I love watching Michael Jordan just float through the air from the free throw line. I love watching Vince Carter jump over seven foot Frenchman to slam one home. I see greatness and I'm in awe and I, and I watch and I take it in and I watch it again and again and again. They have just witnessed something infinitely greater than that. And this is their response. No wonder, no awe, no excitement, no rejoicing with those who rejoice, just anger and accusation. And this is what dead religion does. This is what a failure to understand grace does. And I'm going to keep annoying you with this. Remember, grace equals glad. Right? Grace makes you glad. Why are there so many of us then that are so miserably grumpy? Again, like these guys. Grumpy results from a failure to get grace. A failure to understand and live in light of it. And please read Martin Lloyd-Jones' Spiritual Depression. This book has so helped me. I come back to it again and again and again. And he writes in the foreword, unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give this appearance of unhappiness and lack of freedom and absence of joy. There is no question at all but that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. That's, That's challenging. Are you happy? Are you grumpy or glad? And maybe we need to be confronted in our grumpiness. Jesus is doing that here for the Jews. Maybe he can do it for you and me as well. Again, I'm the chief 
of sinners when it comes to the grumpiness. Talk to my wife. Talk to my kids. I'm aware of it, and I'm tired of it. I'm speaking to myself. I'm seeking to be glad because of grace. Yes, we're all wired differently. Yes, we all experience ups and downs. Yes, we will sometimes be sad. Yes, depression is a thing. But so is salvation. And so is forgiveness. And so is Jesus Christ. And we are commanded rejoice always. Because that's what grace does. Grace solves our one big problem. And grace thus gives us eternal reason to be glad. Consider Moses, right? We think of these prophets as dour, a serious bunch. What's the very last thing that Moses says? What are Moses' last words? That'd be a good trivia question. Um, the very last verse we get from the lips of Moses is Deuteronomy 33, 29. And Moses says, Happy are you, O Israel. Happy are you, O Israel. Why? Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? Happy are you because you're saved by the Lord. Again, the salvation of God makes the people of God happy. It makes, it makes them glad. These guys are miserable. What a miserable response to a miracle. And it's because they too don't get grace. But to get that, to, to get what's going on here and their understanding and their response, we first got to get Sabbath. Right? This whole chapter and conflict revolves around the Sabbath. And don't miss this fact. Jesus is God, right? Perfect in knowledge. Perfect in purpose. Jesus could have come and healed this man on any day. Jesus heals him on this day, right? The Sabbath. That's purposeful. And the purpose is compassionate confrontation. Jesus is God. Perfect in knowledge. Perfect in purpose. And he commands the man, take up your bed and walk. That is purposeful. And the purpose is compassionate confrontation. He could have just healed the guy on any day and sent him on his way. You can walk now, leave the bed. Don't worry about it. No, just go. No, he heals him on this day and he commands him to carry this thing, compassionate confrontation. And so the Jews see and they say, hey, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They're wrong. They're wrong. But Jesus knows that they think it's not lawful. And so he's specifically confronting them in their error, and in their anger, and in their misunderstanding of their law, and in their misunderstanding of grace. And their views and practice of the Sabbath are a great example of that. But listen, we too need help here. We'll get to this in detail when we get to chapter 22 of the 1689. While they misunderstood the Sabbath and were overly strict in the keeping of it, we also misunderstand the Sabbath but run to the opposite extreme and are probably way too lax in our keeping of it. And we don't have time for that now, but it's, it's coming. We're coming to it. But we both need to understand what the Sabbath is and is for. We want to do away with the Sabbath because we don't understand what it is. What does the word Sabbath mean? Rest. What is one of my favorite things in the world? Rest. Right? Look at, we have to start here. Sabbath is good because Sabbath is about rest. And rest is also good. I love my job. I love preaching. I actually love being stuck at church until three or four on Sundays. Oh, but do you know what I also love? Rest. Sunday afternoon in my bed with a book. Done. Rest. It is so good to rest. We all love rest. That's what Sabbath is. And that's what the Sabbath is for. 
And we read of it first all the way back at the beginning, which means this is not just something that is part of the Mosaic law because the Sabbath comes before the Mosaic law. This is the moral, abiding, unchanging law. Genesis 2, 2 through 3. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested. And in the Hebrew, that's Sabbath. On the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God Sabbathed. God rested all his work that he had done in creation. Rest from work. I mean, come on, that's like our favorite thing. Right? That's what God has blessed us with. We are blessed with an entire day of rest. Right? God is so good. His law is so good. And it is always intended for our good. But... The Jews at the time of Jesus, for the most part, not everyone, but for the most part, had missed all of that. As we've been seeing in Romans chapters 3 and 4, there was a tendency within the Judaism of the day to use God's law as a means of earning God's favor. And let's be clear, this isn't a particularly Jewish thing, this is a human thing. Uh, We all have this tendency wired within us. We all deep down believe that we must be good and we must do good to be saved. And that's why Paul has to go to such lengths to argue that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 3, 28. That's for all of us because we all have that problem. And he summarizes uh, in, in Romans 9, 32 that the Jews largely missed all this because they pursued righteousness and they used the law not by faith but as if it were based on works. And that's what they had done with the Sabbath. They made the thing that was specifically about resting into working. Ironically, in obsessively parsing out what work was, they made rest into work. And so their approach to Sabbath is a great symbol of all works religion, which again, we are all prone to. There's a little part of me right now of my indwelling sin and the old man that remains that is trying to justify myself and how well I can preach sermons and how well I can convince you that I'm good at my job. Right? That's always there. Right? There's always this something where we're trying to prove ourselves and justify ourselves. But there is nothing that will make you more miserable and nothing that is more opposed to the good grace of God. Do you know where you tend toward works righteousness? Are you aware of how you are prone to self-justify? We all do it in different ways, but we all do it. How do you try and demonstrate your goodness and your rightness by something that you are or something that you do? Are you aware of how, you tend to pro- uh, how prone you are to hold others to your own man-made laws and traditions? Because that's what they were doing, and they were wrong. It was very much lawful for the man to carry his bed. Exodus 20, verse 8, the fourth commandment simply says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. This man was not working. He was carrying a mat. He was not violating God's law. He was violating their law. They had, as we are all prone to do, they had replaced God's rules with their own rules. God's law simply says don't work, rest, Take a day off from your occupation. From Work is one's customary employment. It is how you make a living. Take a day off from that rest and trust the Lord. That's it. 
But they had taken God's good and simple law and made it bad and complicated. They had come up with 39 different categories or classes of work which were forbidden on the Sabbath. You know what the 39th one was, the very last one? Carrying anything from one place to another. This is just one of the many ways they attempted to earn God's favor and establish their righteousness through law-keeping and through works. And so Jesus is graciously putting his finger right on that tendency. He heals specifically on the Sabbath, and he commands the man specifically to carry for the purpose of this kind of confrontation. Sin is bad, and works righteousness is opposed to grace. Therefore, it is always kind of God to expose our sin and to confront us where we are prone toward works righteousness. And he's not just being kind to the man that he heals. He's being kind to the Jewish leaders as well. They are wrong. That's bad. Jesus is exposing that. They are separated from God as evidenced by their grumpiness and anger at Christ's compassionate healing. And so what an opportunity Jesus gives to them here. What a kindness. See your sin. See your deadness. Repent. Turn from it. Jesus is a compassionate confronter. Maybe he's confronting you. How has he been confronting you this day or this week or this year? Again, I told you, it's my impatience and it's my anger and it's my grumpiness that he just keeps bringing to light and says, this is not okay, this is not okay, and this is not good. What sin are you clinging to and refusing to give up and give over? Where is he confronting you and your tendency to justify yourself? Where do you fail to trust in the perfect and finished work of Christ? Because that's always unbelief. And unbelief is a sin against the God of grace. And praise God that he does not leave us in that sin. His confrontation of our sin is always a kindness. And so is his warning us in our sin. Point number three, let's run and move to Christ's compassionate warning. Let's now go back to the man. Oh, people are so divided on how to interpret this guy and his response. Uh, so, I'm open to being wrong here. I'm going to give you what I think. I'm not 100%. Uh, let's talk about it afterwards. You can disagree with me if you'd like. Um, but, I lean with most of the commentators. Most agree that he does not come off so well uh, in this story. In verse 11, let's, let's look at him. How do we interpret this guy? Verse 11, he seems not to be defending Jesus. It kind of seems like he could be blaming Jesus. Kind of sounds like Adam, uh, the woman you gave me, God. Right? It was, she, you gave her to me. She did it. Um, plus verse 13, doesn't even know who Jesus is. What does he do once he figures out who Jesus is? Verse 15, he runs right to the Pharisees. It doesn't, I don't think it, it doesn't seem that he is witnessing to Jesus, but it sure feels like he's tattling on Jesus. And he knew that they were angry about what had happened. And then he runs right to them and says, oh, it's Jesus, I found him, it's Jesus. And he turns them in. There's not a single expression of gratitude or thanks for what Jesus has done. Remember in the previous episode, right before this, context matters, we saw the specific mention of the man believing in Jesus, his whole household believes in Jesus. None of that here. Not one word or any indication that he believes. And so in the context of the story that comes before, 
In comparison with the similar story, there's a blind man that Jesus heals in John chapter 9, and the story feels very similar, yet that man's response is very different than this man's. He defends Jesus, he's cast out for it, and then he specifically says, I believe, and he worships Jesus. So there's no question in John 9. But John doesn't tell us anything else about this guy. And thus, within the context of the rising conflict with the unbelieving Jewish authorities, most then see this guy as a man representative of such unbelief. He, I think, is an example of getting something from Jesus, but not getting Jesus. And we think, no, but he got healed, so that means he got saved. No, actually, that's not the case at all. Think about it. It seems like Jesus healed massive numbers of people. But at his, at his crucifixion, there's nobody. A couple of the women are there. After the ascension, we have about 120 people gathered together. And he healed many. He fed thousands and thousands. The vast majority of them did not believe. Go read John 6. They leave when he doesn't give them more food. They receive the miracle. They were blessed by the revelation of Jesus' kindness and compassion, and they abandon Jesus. See, again, it's not about the signs. The signs are not the point. Seeing a sign, experiencing a miracle is not saving faith. Saving faith believes and receives Christ. Its focus is Christ, not what it can get from Christ. Again, I, I don't think this man believes. I think he's a sign. I think he's a warning. I think he's a, hey, 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 be careful. Right? John is going to great lengths to show us not the signs, Christ. But once again, look at how gracious this Christ is. Look at his gracious warning in verse 14. And he knows everything. He knows what this man is doing. He knows there has been no gratitude, no faith, and so Jesus says to him, see, you are well. This is strange. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We'd rather that just not be there. We'd rather just ignore that verse. Sounds threatening. Nothing worse? What can be worse than 38 years of miserable, seemingly unending physical suffering as an invalid? How about an eternity of years of miserable, actually unending physical and spiritual suffering as an enemy of God in hell? And the two are not even on the same scale. And so Jesus very kindly comes to him again a second time and very kindly warns him, sin no more. What's he talking about? What sin is he talking about? Good question. Some argue that he's talking about the sin that resulted in this man's suffering. Again, we don't like that because we know that all suffering and sickness is not a direct result of personal sin. Again, we know that. That's what the whole book of Job, we spent a year in the book of Job. That's what the whole book of Job is about. In John 9, verse 3, Jesus specifically says that it was not the blind man's sin that led to his blindness. So, again, it is not the case that all suffering is a result of personal sin. Let me be clear on that. Not the case that all sin is a result of personal, all suffering is a result of personal sin. But that doesn't mean that some suffering is not a result of personal sin. Because it absolutely is. Right, today, we have the great privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Go read 1 Corinthians 11. In verse 30, Paul specifically says that because of sin at the table, some are weak and ill and have died. Sin, direct result. Suffering, sickness, 
death. Of course, some sin results in suffering and sickness. We live in an ordered moral universe. It's not just physical cause and effect, but there's generally moral cause and effect. Sin is bad. It will generally have bad consequences and bad effects. We know that suffering and sickness is often entirely unrelated to personal sin, but we need to also know that it often is related. Okay? And so we want to be careful. We want to be clear. Uh, we don't want to just jump to conclusions because, again, we often don't know. And we, often, we especially need to be careful about pronouncing that upon others. But I think we should all at least be personally examining ourselves. Right? Is there flagrant, unrepentant sin in our lives? Could God be warning us about that? God disciplines those that he loves. Maybe that's one of the ways that he does it. And if you think about it, sickness is always ultimately the result of sin. It is the result of living in a sin-cursed world. Were there no sin, there would be no suffering and death. But there is sin. And so there is suffering and death. I mean, just look around. The world, it is not right. It is not well. It is not good. And we are the problem. Uh, sin is the problem. I talked with a lady last week who said she believes in the goodness of the universe. And I said, that's a great idea. I love that idea. But then I just kind of talked with her a little bit about my own heart and the evil and the sin and the wickedness that I see in there, much less everywhere else. It's just not true that it's good. Sin is the problem. And so it is very gracious for God to warn us about our sin. And he does so in various ways. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this text, says, Every sickness and sorrow is the voice of God speaking to us. Each has its peculiar message. Happy are they who have an eye to see God's hand and an ear to hear his voice in all that happens to him. Sunday school this morning, the decrees of God. God decrees everything that occurs. Happy is the man who can see and hear God in all that happens to them. Nothing in this world happens by chance. And as it is with sickness, so it is with recovery. Renewed health should send us back to our post in the world with a deeper hatred of sin, a more thorough watchfulness over our own ways, and a more constant purpose of mind to live for God. So when we experience something like we did uh, Wednesday night, I spent three hours in the storm battling water and we lost. Um, so we're, we're right to be sad about that. Right? We're right to help our neighbors. Uh, we are right to mourn. That's a good things. But are we ever warned Ever. Is that ever our response to these things? Nothing happens by chance. Do we see God's voice speaking to us in such events? The world is pain and suffering. The world is not our home. The world is passing away. Do not hope in this world. Do not hope in your things. Do not hope in the dryness of your basement. Do not love this world. Again, do not remain in your sin. For as Jesus says in Luke 13, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. That's his response to a disaster and to suffering and to something bad that has happened. He says, it's not necessarily that they're worse than you. No, that's not how it works. But unless you repent, all of you will likewise perish. For the wages of sin is death. Good God, sin is a rejection of him. That God is life. Sin is then necessarily death, eternal death. Sin no more, Jesus says to this man. Repent and be spared the right and righteous judgment that your sin deserves from a good and holy God. And so maybe Jesus is referencing whatever that sin is. Maybe. Or maybe 
Jesus isn't saying that some specific sin was the cause of his illness. Maybe he's confronting the man's sin of ingratitude. And this one should actually maybe even be more concerning to us. Because how much do we complain? And how ungrateful are we uh, to God and how good he has been to us? The man has gone his own way. He is not thankful. He has not believed. He has received and he has rejected. And so Jesus graciously warns him. Again, go read Romans 1. Ingratitude toward God is very grievous to God because he is God and he is perfectly good and every good thing comes from him. Thus to receive those good things and not acknowledge him and give thanks to him is the ultimate sin. It is unbelief. It is a rejection of him and his goodness. And so Jesus kindly warns, don't do that. Stop. You're sinful. Ingratitude. See how good God has been to you. Church, If you are in Christ, see how good God has been to you. No matter what, in Christ, he has been eternally good to you. Love him. Believe in him. The story is not about the physical healing more than meets the eye. Jesus is using the physical healing to draw attention to this man's need for spiritual healing. And the physical healing, if it is not accompanied by the spiritual healing that it's supposed to point to, Ultimately, that physical healing results only in further judgment for this man. Sin no more that something worse may not happen to you. God's concern is holiness, not health, spiritual well-being, not physical well-being. He is about so much more than physical health and a short life of comfort and ease. He simply does not care about many of the things that we tend to care most about. He is concerned about your spiritual health and your eternity. He is wiser than us. And any of you financial people, right? Any of you wise planning people, it's foolish to focus on like this week and not focus on the decades to come. It is foolish for us to focus on these few decades and not focus on the eternity to come. That's God's concern. B.B. Warfield, again, writes about Christ's healing ministry. Jesus took men upon the plain on which he found them, and he sought to lead them through the needs which they felt and the relief of which they sought in him up to a recognition of their greater needs and of his ability to give relief to them also. Is that what we want from Jesus? Are our eyes focused on him? Do we see the physician not just of body but of, of soul? We have been very concerned with our physical health this last year and a half. And that's good. That is not a bad thing. But have we been at all concerned with our spiritual health? And how's your soul? Jesus compassionately warns us of the danger of sin to your soul. Sin is death, so sin no more. Flee it, leave it, give it to the great physician, Jesus Christ. Why exactly should you do that? Who is he exactly? Uh, Point number four. We'll close with this. Worry not, it'll be short. Christ's compassionate revelation. This is what we will do in great detail next week. So we'll just touch on it, and then we have a whole week on it. And remember the theme of this whole section of John. Progressive revelation leading to progressive confrontation. The revelation of Christ and the resulting conflict with Christ. Here's the revelation. Here's the point of the story. Here's the more. Christ is revealing his identity and he's confronting you with it and then he's demanding a response. Verse 17. My father is working until now and I am working. And what does that mean? We'll we'll pick it up in detail next week with verse 19. But they understand what it means. They understand 
what Jesus is saying. This is not unclear. Verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's who Jesus is. That's the point of the story. That's what the very first verse of this whole book revealed to us. The word was God. And this is the first time Jesus himself is revealing it to somebody else in the story. So this is huge. This is the point. Jesus is God. And God forgive us for ever becoming bored with this truth. This one that we have been looking at. This one who is compassionate and kind, who heals, confronts, and warns. He is none other than God himself in the flesh. And this is the great claim of the Christian faith. God has come. God has become man in the person of Jesus Christ. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We reject God. We run from God. Here he is running after us. Here he is accepting us in Christ. Again, this is the truth that you need to fix in your brain and read your entire life and all your circumstances and filter every thought and feeling through God has become man to save man from his sins. Those sins which are death. Not just physical death. Eternal death. And he comes to do it. Jesus comes to save us by dying for us. For us to live, he had to die. The wages had to be paid. The death had to be paid. And so Jesus comes, God comes to pay the death. That's unbelievable. This is why there's none other like our Jesus. This is why we preach Christ crucified. This is why we are glad Because the God of the Bible, our God, is so, so good. And he demonstrates that goodness perfectly in the grace of Christ on the cross in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. This is the good news of the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. He said, hey, listen, I know life is hard, and I know we've had some rough stretches, and I know you're suffering. Eternity. I'm working on your eternity. And I'm securing it. And I'm making an eternal weight of glory for you. We just can't quite see and grasp what it is that he is doing. This is what Jesus is compassionately revealing to us and to them. I am God. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am life. I am rest. I am peace. I have come. Again, we know how they respond to this compassionate revelation. They were seeking all the more to kill him. And they will succeed. The Rubicon has been crossed. Everything is driving furiously towards the cross. Gracious healing has resulted in growing hostility. But what about you? How are you going to respond today to his compassionate revelation? Church, if you are in Christ, he has healed you. And he is compassionately and continually confronting you by his spirit, through his word, for your good. That thing is bad. This is good. Let me confront you in this. And he is compassionately warning you, hey, sin is bad. I am good. Sin no more and find life and joy and peace in me. And he is once again, every single week, every single time you read his word, he is graciously revealing himself to you. Isn't he so good? Look at him. Uh, Love him, live as if these things were actually true. Are you glad in the grace of God? It's it's so embarrassing that I so struggle with this. It is only sin and unbelief when I am not glad and I have all this for free by the grace of God in Christ. And so praise God that he forgives even my grumpiness and even my unbelief. And praise God that he begins the work and he's promised to complete it and he's going to carry me through the whole 
And do you see how compassionate and kind and good and gracious he is? See it. And then let's seek together as a church to live as if that is actually true. And if you are not in Christ and you are here today, again, how blessed are you? You've had the privilege of hearing not my words, but you've had the privilege of hearing Christ's words. And these were words revealed to him, revealed to you, a him to be the life that you are looking for, whether you know it or not. And we wholeheartedly believe that you will only find life and you will only find satisfaction and identity and joy and peace and what you're looking for in Jesus Christ. And so we invite you and we encourage you to turn from your sin and to believe in him. He is a suitable savior. And we pray that you will find great satisfaction in such a compassionate savior. If you would bow with me, let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we ask now for your help. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that your word will not return to you void. We thank you for the person of the Holy Spirit who takes that word, who applies that word, who convicts us with that word, who comforts and encourages us with that word. Father, show us Jesus Christ. Uh, Grab and capture our hearts and our affections with him. Show us how compassionate and kind he is. Show us how much he cares for our souls and what he has done on the cross to secure our future and to secure our identity, to give us unending, unimaginably good uh, life with you for all eternity. Father, I pray that that would be our fuel and our motivation. That would be what we live for. I pray that you would just help us to love Jesus. I pray for anyone in here, anyone, anyone in here who does not know Jesus. Uh, Father, I cannot help them. I cannot save them. But Father, you can, and we ask that you would. We ask that you would open their eyes to their sin and to their um, spiritually uh, invalid condition and their helplessness and their hopelessness. But Father, show them what power and what grace and what love and compassion there is to be found in Jesus Christ and bring them to him. Uh, grant them repentance and faith and grant them new life in Jesus. Um, Father, we are um, completely... Helpless apart from you. And so we ask now that you would do your work. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.